morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Kean. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Cork. I've been for the last few years with a few of us. Uh, and I'm going to be preaching this morning. So before I start, I'm just going to pray really briefly. So please pray with me. Father God, we come before you humbly now, Lord, wanting to hear from you. Um, I pray that your promises, your truths will be so evident today, Lord. pray that you would hide me behind your cross and that you would have, have, have your say, Lord. Uh, that our hearts would be open, soft, our minds would be open to what you have to say to us this morning, Lord. Uh, and just bless your word now, Lord, as, it, as it's spoken to your people. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so um, I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about myself. It's probably the most embarrassing, probably the most embarrassing moment in my life. I was, um, I was at a soccer match, like a little five-a-side game at Leisure World there in Bishopstown. And uh, I knew they needed to go to the toilet. And uh, so I, I ran away from the pitch and I had to run around to the front of the kind of complex where there's the reception and there's uh, kind of the glass sliding doors. So I was running, running in. I have to go and get back to the match quick. And so I run around the corner and get to the glass doors and I ran clean into the glass. The nose first, it actually kind of hurt as well, yeah. Not just my physical body, but it hurt inside as well. And uh, yeah, and every, there was like maybe a dozen people on the inside that saw like the whole thing perfectly clear. And uh, I was so embarrassed, I had to just run, I ran away. I didn't even go in. Yeah, I just, I just, I just turned around and went back out to the pitch and probably went out the back of the pitch or something, I don't know. But that was a very, very embarrassing moment for me. I couldn't even walk in. Another embarrassing moment for me. And this was even, this is worse than this is even more of a, of a shame thing. And I feel like guilt and shame, or guilt and embarrassment mixed to me kind of feels like a shameful thing. And so the next thing is when, and my good friend Owen Minehan asked me to mind his dogs or feed his dogs, right? When when he was away, he was I think he was in Munich. I, I don't know where Owen's sitting. I think he's there. He's on the back. Good man. Anyway, and his dad, they have dogs. They have two little dogs. They're lovely. And they asked me to mind the dogs um, when they were when they were away for the weekend. And so I went up and they showed me where all the food was, whatever. This is Thursday night, say. Uh, and they were kind of out in the shed. And then I was meant to come back on Friday, Saturday, Sunday feed the dogs, no bother, handy out, dogs would be perfect. Anyway, it was Sunday evening, I was sitting at home, my wife, we were living in Douglas at the time, and I said, um, oh no, I forgot about Owen's dogs. <laughs> That's the PG version of what I said. <laughs> and I remember just, I, I, I felt so bad, could you imagine, because the dogs are precious to them, obviously, like, they love the dogs. I was thinking that the dogs are dead. The dogs are, or one of them's after eating the other one or something, they're starving at home. I said, this is a disaster. And I was embarrassed that I forgot, but I also felt so, so bad for him. I felt ashamed that I forgot because like, the dogs mean so much to him. And so that's my most embarrassing moment, probably my most shameful moment. There's, there's way worse stories about my life than that. They're just the kind of acceptable ones to say out loud here in church. So I don't want to get, get ahead of myself, but yeah, they're really bad stories. And this story here that we're going to talk about next is David's most embarrassing moment and most shameful moment. And yeah, we're laughing and joking, oh, it's, it's a bit of crack, but the story is actually quite dark and quite deep and quite grim. And so we're going to be looking at David in his worst moment ever. And we're going to look at how God works through that moment to bring him back to repentance. We're going to look at how he uses Nathan the prophet to bring him back there. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to give a bit of context first. Obviously it's Psalm 51. John, John did the call to worship on it. Thanks, John. That, was, that definitely wasn't planned. That was the Lord working there. I, I do believe that the Lord wanted us to hear that again. So thanks, John. Um, so if you want to turn to Psalm 51, you can. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move around a little bit from there, but you can turn there if you haven't turned there yet. 
But the context of this story, you see it at the very top of the, of the psalm there. It's, it's kind of before verse 1, say. And that's actually in scripture. It's not just a, a, a study note or anything like that. Um, it says that um, it's to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so it's really helpful to have that context there clear as day before we even read the psalm. It comes from chap- or 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, so if you're taking notes, write that down. So the story that this psalm is written after is the story found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, 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 and 12. So I'm going to just paraphrase the story. I'm not going to read it out fully, um, just for time's sake. So the story was, the nation of Israel was at battle, and, but David decided to stay at the palace, and he sent his generals and armies out to fight the battle. He stayed at the palace, and then David was going around his palace, chilling out one day, and he saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. So he took her, called, sent for her, took her, he lay with her, she got pregnant. And so then, to cover it up, he summoned her husband Uriah from battle. So he was one of the soldiers fighting for David. He, sent, he got him back to the palace. He tried to get him then to go home to Bathsheba to lay with her so he'd cover it up and have some sort of excuse why it happened. But Uriah wouldn't go home because he felt too bad on his fellow soldiers out in the field fighting. He said, I can't go home and enjoy my life now when all my friends and my brothers are out fighting, so I'm not going to go. So then the next day, David got him drunk and tried to convince him again, go home, go on and enjoy your time home with your wife. And he wouldn't go again. And so David said, okay, I know what I'm going to do here now. And what he did is he sent him back out to battle. He sent him with a letter to the general. And the letter said to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines of the battle and then draw the men back so that he'd die. And, and that happened. So Uriah died in battle as David had planned. And so then when, when Uriah died, David took Bathsheba as his wife, uh, and she had a son, um, David's son. And it's, it's, a, it's a grim story, it's a sad story, uh, and it's a, it's a familiar story, kind of, to be honest. And I suppose we see a lot of men in power take advantage of, of women, um, and they get away with it, or they seem like they're going to get away with it. And so it's a common theme, it's not just David, it's, it's been happening for, I suppose, the, since the dawn of time. Um, but in this sense, it looks like he's going to get away with it here now. But thankfully he doesn't. Thankfully the Lord steps in. And that's where we get to Sam, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 then. And this is where Nathan the prophet comes in. So I'm going to just read this little passage because it's a nice, it has nice wording in it and stuff. So this is Nathan, right? And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, yeah, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And so, from this place, David's done the worst thing he's ever done in his life. He gets called out by Nathan, 
And even the way he does it makes David feel it so strong. Obviously, David says, this man deserves to die. So from this place of despair, realizing how much wrong he's done, being called out from this place, David then writes Psalm 51. So that, that's where the background's coming from. David writes this Psalm as a response to what Nathan the prophet and God has revealed to him in his own heart. And so I'm just going to have three points today, really, from, from, from the text from Psalm 51. It kind of, it's broken down into three chunks. And, and the first of them, I think there's a slide for this um, with the three points. The first point is that God's kindness leads to our repentance. God's kindness leads to our repentance. The second point is that God's mercy leads to our redemption. And the third point is that God's restoration leads to our renewal. And so if you put that all together, it's God kindly leads us to repentance, redemption, and renewal. And so we're going to keep coming back to that throughout the sermon. We're going to look at how God's kindness leads to our repentance, how his mercy leads to our redemption, and how his restoration leads to our renewal. And so we're going to go straight into it there in verse 1. Um, and we're going to look at how this is really a prayer of David. It's a prayer to God. Uh, and and that, this, this sermon series is called Dear God. It's about how to pray, learning to pray from the Psalms. And so this is a, a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of what to do when you've messed up or you've realized, you realize you've messed up and you're dealing with the guilt and shame of it. This is a prayer, how to pray in that situation. And so we can learn from it. Um, and, and we'll do that now. So we're going to look at verse 1. First of all, I just want to give an introduction to repentance as a whole because it's kind of a it's kind of a it's a confusing word sometimes to some people, especially from a religious background, where repentance is like a and this is what I used to think when I was young that you know if I I was a Christian from a young age, but if I had sinned say in a day, and then I didn't have a chance to repent, and if I died in that time frame, that I'd go to hell because the sin was on me, and so I would like. And I spoke to this about Mike, and he, he said he had similar experience when he was young. That you would, at the end of the day, you'd have a list of, try to keep a list of everything you've done wrong throughout the day. And you'd say, okay, God, I'm sorry for this, this, and this. Uh, and forgive me. Okay, so now that's off me, and I'm forgiven. So now I can go to sleep, and I'm okay. But that's, that's not what we're talking about at all. What we're talking about is, uh, there's two kinds of, 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 of repentance, really. And I'm going to explain them now in a second. Um, but I have a quote from, from Martin Luther. I think there's a slide for that. So this is actually the t October 31st, 2021 is the 504th anniversary of Reformation Day, which is the day that Martin Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them to the door of Wittenberg Church in Germany, and that sparked the Reformation. So I, want, I said it would be nice to fit in to quote this today, and it's the first, the number one of the 95 theses is this. Um, Martin Luther writes, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, in Matthew 4:17. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so the context he was writing that in is against the Catholic Church at the time who were selling indulgences for money, which would get your family out of purgatory or make sure that you didn't go to purgatory. And so this idea of paying something or sacrificing something of yourself, or say, you know, paying penance, punishing yourself, paying money, that would absolve you from your sin and you'd get to heaven. So Martin Luther obviously didn't agree with that and said no. It's about true repentance and repentance of the heart. It's not about money that you pay. Uh, and so even from back then, 504 years ago, repentance was an important aspect of the Christian faith. And so like I said, there's, there's two kinds. And this helps, us, this helps me realize what, what 
I, how I should build repentance into my life um, because it can be a bit confusing. So I think that the first kind of repentance is, is the first time that you become a Christian and you first realize you have that moment where, yes, I'm a sinner and I need to believe in Jesus. And, and, and from that moment of, of initial repentance, you're completely forgiven for the rest of your life because of Christ's work, not because of you, but because of Christ's work. And as it says in Colossians 3, it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so from that moment, you are placed in Christ and your life and your sins are completely hidden in Christ. And that will never, ever, ever change for the rest of your life. That's, that's a done deal. As Christ did on the cross, it is finished. It's a finished work. So that's the first kind of repentance. I'm not talking about that repentance now as a Christian. You don't have to do that every day at all. That's different. That's not, we don't believe that at all. But the second kind of repentance that I'm going to talk about today is... It's like it's throughout your Christian life. And it's not that you'll go to hell if you don't do it because your sins are already forgiven. It's your, and your position in Christ is totally unchanging regardless of your actions. But repentance is an important part of the Christian life because it helps us to deal with our sin in our lives and it's pleasing to God. And I have a quote there from Professor Stephen Wellham. There's a slide for that too, I think. And he sums it up really, really well why it's an important aspect of Christian day-to-day -day life. Uh, better than I could sum it up, to be honest. It says, when we sin, we lose our consciousness of forgiveness, consciousness of forgiveness, not forgiveness, and our sense of peace with God. So when we confess our sins by the work of the Spirit, we are reawakened to what Christ has done for us. And God revives our security in him and our assurance of salvation. Believers then continue to pray daily for forgiveness, not with the despair of one who thinks he is lost, but in the confidence of justified and adopted children, approaching a heavenly father who has declared them just in Jesus Christ. So that's the kind of repentance I'm talking about. It's for us. It's because it's we lose our consciousness of forgiveness and our sense of peace. But it's an important for us, step for us to keep, keep uh, reminding ourselves of that. So, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Straight away here we see how God's kindness leads us to repentance. Romans uh, chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so we don't come, we don't come to God like we would come to a schoolmaster or someone we're afraid of and saying, oh, I'm so scared. What, what is God going to do to me this time if I come and tell him what I did? We're coming to him as a, as a loving father and it's his kindness that draws us in, not out of fear or obligation, it's his kindness. And we see that very clear in, in verse 1 is from the very start, David has an understanding of this. He says, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. So David's aware of God's abundant love, or sorry, steadfast love and abundant mercy from the start, even before he comes to him. And he knows that he can find refuge there. So I think there's, there's three ways that God's, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And that's, that's the first one, a knowledge of his love, a knowledge of his grace, a knowledge of his mercy. That's important. The second one is that the Holy Spirit, as a kind gift from God, works in our heart a realization of what we've done and brings us to a place of repentance. It says in John 16, verse 8, this is Jesus talking about the coming Holy Spirit. Jesus says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the Holy Spirit's job in our hearts, in our lives, is to point us back to Christ to repent. The third way that God leads us to repentance in his kindness is, it, is the kind gift of loving and godly people in our lives like the prophet Nathan here. Obviously, it's a, it's a tough one. If, if you're going to be innate to someone else, obviously you have to do it with tact and love. You can't just be brutal, brutal and, and just come up with anything. But it is, it, is a, it is a true gift, honestly, and you should have people in your life 
like Nathan, that are willing to be honest with you. Good friends who are willing to say, look, Keen, like that wasn't right what you did there, what you said to that person, how you treated that person, what you did there the other night, like that's not on, like that's, you should do better, you know, you should know better and, and that's not pleasing to God. And obviously, it's, it can be hard to hear sometimes, especially, and it's not, obviously it's not always 100% accurate. Obviously some people say things that are off the wall or whatever, and you know, haters gonna hate or whatever, but when it lines up with scripture, when it lines up with scripture and it's something that God's put on your heart, and, it, and it's in line with scripture, you should, you should accept it as David did. And I like how David didn't turn around to Nathan and start making more excuses. Because he has, for a year, basically, it was a year past because the baby had been born and such. So it was, it's been about a year and he's been making excuses for that long. But then when Nathan comes to him, thankfully he doesn't turn around and be like, oh no, Nathan, you're wrong. I didn't do that. You made this up, whatever. He accepts it. We should learn from that. And if we have godly people in our lives who are willing to, to, to be honest with us and loving with us and tell us when we've messed up, then it's a good thing and you should appreciate it. So there are the three ways that I think God in his kindness leads us back to repentance. And it's something that we should be mindful of and always looking out for. And so then with God leading us back in his kindness, how do we repent? What does repentance look like? How do we come to God with it? And I think that's throughout the rest of say verse one to six and a little bit in 17. David explains and he demonstrates the sort of attitude and way you come back to God. So I'm just going to read it briefly again from verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so we see here David isn't skirting responsibility anymore. He's not making any excuses. He's real with himself, he's honest with himself, and he's honest with God. He acknowledges his sinful nature in verse five. He mentions, you know, in sin my mother did conceive me. He's not, this is poetry, he's not talking about his mother, he's talking about his very nature. From, from his very inside out, he's a sinner at heart. And so he's always going to sin in and of himself. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to make light of what he's done. He says, I've done evil in your sight. Um, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And so that's the first step really when you come to God in repentance. Just be honest, just be real. Don't light yourself anymore. Don't try to light to God anymore. He knows exactly what's going on anyway. There's no point, just own it. Be genuine, be down to earth and say, look, I've messed up, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm so broken, I need you God, I need your help. That's really important. And I like how in verse six, he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. It just goes to show how it's so important that it's an inward work, that it's in your heart of hearts. It's not, it's not superficial. We don't want to be like the Pharisees, as Jesus called them, whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside, but in the appearance of righteousness on the outside. That's, that's not what God's after at all at all. And, and we'll see that again later on. But David understands this, I believe, from... There's a story from David's own life in verse in First Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. Basically, it's when he's selected as king and uh, David's dad lines up all the brothers and David's dad saying, oh, look at the older brothers, they're great. But Samuel calls for David, prompted by the Lord, obviously. And this is what Samuel says. It says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so even though his brothers might have been bigger or stronger, they might have looked like a better fit, 
the Lord looked at the heart, and it's still true today that the Lord still looks at our hearts. And so it doesn't matter what you have on the outside. It doesn't matter what your life looks on the outside. If your heart is rotten, that's all that matters. And so there's a good quote by, by Charles Spurgeon here. I have to fit in a Spurgeon quote. Um, it's really good, and I think it sums up that point really well, the importance of being honest with God and honest with yourself. It says, reality, sincerity, true holiness, heart fidelity. These are the demands of God. He cares not for the pretense of purity. He looks to the mind, the heart, and the soul. Always has the Holy One of Israel estimated men by their inner nature and not by their outward professions. To him, the inward is as visible as the outward, and he rightly judges that the essential character of an action lies in the motive of him who works it. And so I think it's pretty clear from the text, from the quote, that an honest heart is, is what God's looking for. It's not about it's not about pretending to be pure. It's not about coming into church with a with a with a perfect life put together. It's about being honest with yourself and honest with God. And obviously, here in Calvary, we want to foster a culture of honesty amongst us all ourselves as well it's good to be honest with each other it's good to have a genuine heart you know we're down to earth we're humble we try to be at least and we want that to spill over into our church gatherings into our community groups into our um all our different ministries women's men's youth everything absolutely everything we want honesty humility um, and realness with each other just to be just to be a kind of a prevalent prevalent aspect of that of our culture so that's the end of point one really where we mentioned that God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so we see that God, God kindly leads us to repentance, redemption, and renewal. And so the next thing is, is redemption. And so how does God's mercy lead us to redemption? Our forgiveness is another word you could use instead of, instead of redemption. So this then, we've seen in verses kind of one to six, David's heart and his honesty. In verses seven to, seven to nine and a bit of 16 then, we see how God's mercy leads to our redemption. That's okay, it's grand. <laughs> it was the worst moment because I took a sip of water, yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> it's grand, it's grand. So, some of you might know this, it's a popular phrase. Some people who've been in church a while know that David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And this comes from Acts, um, well, there's a couple of places where it is, but in Acts 13, 22, um, it says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so this kind of confused me always for a while. How can you say that David is a man after his own heart when you read this story? Like, see the evil that he's done and the bad, like genuinely awful things that he's done. How can you say that David's a man after God's own heart? And I believe that the reason that David is, is, is known to be a man after God's own heart, as it says in the Bible, is present in this passage and other passages, but I believe that David understood the gospel and understood the, com the coming Messiah and had a revelation of Christ ever before Christ came. And I'll explain that, I'll go through it and explain it in a minute, but we'll see in certain passages, there's Romans 3, verse 20, verses 21 to 26. I might just read verse, um, verse 25 there actually, because it's a, it's a good one. I wasn't planning on, but I'll just do it in a um, Verses 3, 26. So this is, this. I'm trying to explain how, because it's kind of confusing how David, before Jesus came, had an understanding of Christ and had an understanding of the gospel. Those us today, we're looking back on Christ and we remember him. 
But in those days, in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. And there were some people who had a special revelation of it in the Old Testament, as it's described in, in the New Testament. And so in, in Romans 3, verse 25, it says, um, I'll go back to 24, actually. Uh, actually, 23. <laughs> we'll go back to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so that shows that God in divine forbearance passed over former sins in the Old Testament with Christ in mind and Christ's propitiation of his blood in mind. There's another text to back it up here because it, it, it's, it's a bit of a hard one to grasp. It's in um, Galatians 3, verses 1 to 9. If you're taking notes, 1 to 9 is a good whole thing to read, but I, I'll, just quote, um, I'll just quote verse 8. In Galatians 3, 8, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. And so Abraham came thousands of years before Christ, and so how did, how did Abraham have anything to do with the gospel? But it says here that the scripture foreseeing, again, that kind of divine forbearance, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. And so like Abraham, and there's Hebrews 11 as well, it goes through how all, all the great men of faith throughout the Old Testament, it was all by faith and not by works. And so we can see aspects of Psalm 51, which don't make sense if you're to look at just the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. It doesn't really fully line up. And one massive aspect of the story where it doesn't really make sense at all is that in, in, in this story, David was actually, he should have been killed by, by the law. As in, he, he killed a man, he took his wife, and according to the Old Testament law, that deserved death. But David wasn't, didn't die, and I have this verse somewhere, now I'm looking for it, sorry. David... I don't want to just make this up. I want to make sure you have it. Ah, yes, it was right there in front of me. No, that's not it either. <laughs> but, but, ah, yes, at the end. Sorry. So, <laughs> close one. I thought I was making that up there for a second. <laughs> Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David, say, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. And so that's not characteristic of the Old Testament. Why has the Lord put away David's sin and not put him to death? Why did David get away with it, essentially, almost seemingly scot-free? That's not how the Old Testament worked. But again, that's again looking forward to the New Testament, to the common gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have our sins forgiven. And so that's in verse 7. I want to I wanna focus on verse 7 for a minute there on that. It says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, you can read over that, and it, it might not mean much, but I want to focus on the imagery of, of the hyssop there for, this, for a second, and it's a very significant uh, plant in the Old Testament. There's two, there's two main aspects where it comes up in the Old Testament. One of them is, uh, if you remember the story of the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt, and God sent plagues against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians, and the last plague was the death of the firstborn son. And as protection, so that the Israelites' firstborn son wouldn't be killed, 
they had to put the blood of a lamb on their, door, on their doorpost. It's a familiar story. So they spread, or they put blood on the doorpost, and then the angel of death would pass over their house and not come in. So they actually used a hyssop branch to spread the blood on their doorpost. They used it as a, as a, as a, as a kind of a paintbrush to paint the blood onto the doorposts. And the Passover, the whole aspect of the Passover, it really points to Christ and how Christ's blood covers us and is painted over us so that the angel of death passes over us and so our sins are not counted against us. Jesus is the ultimate picture of the Passover, Passover lamb. As it says in John chapter 1, verse 29, this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the hyssop points back to the Passover lamb, the blood of the Passover lamb who protects us from death. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And so that's the image there about from the hyssop going back to Jesus again. The other thing is from Numbers 19.8. This is a less known story. Numbers 19 is a chapter on purification laws. And so in verse 18, it's talking about how a person is purified after they've been in contact with a dead person or a dead animal, or if they were in a tent when a person died. By the Jewish law, they were unclean. And so they had to be purified. And how they were purified, one step of the purification process is that a hyssop branch would be dipped in water and they'd be sprinkled with the water and then they'd be purified by the water. And again, I, play, I think this is an image again pointing towards Christ. As um, in, in John 19, 34, how the water and blood poured from Jesus' side and how we're washed clean by Jesus' blood and represented from the water flowing from his side as well. And so we see here, I believe that David, either intentionally or unintentionally, is being prophetic and he's looking towards Christ as we look back, David's looking forward towards the coming Messiah and he's thinking of the hyssop, the blood of the lamb who, who paid for our sins and, and the water that washes us clean. And he's looking forward to that and that's why he writes this and that's why he can say, I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He in understanding that through a sacrificial lamb, which is Christ forever, through a sacrifice like that, he can be washed whiter than snow regardless of what he's ever done. And I believe he had a special revelation of that. And we can have a full revelation of that this morning, knowing that regardless of what we've done, Christ's blood can wash away absolutely anything. Whether, you, whether you've been relatively good your whole life, it doesn't matter. Whether you've had, you believe you've had an awful life, it doesn't matter. Regardless of what you've done or regardless of what you're going through right now, Christ's blood is enough to wash it away. And I, I have a quote from, from, from uh, Catherine Parks here as well. And she sums it up quite nicely here about, about the imagery of the hyssop. Yeah, there's a... A thing there. David writes, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He knows hyssop signifies purification with blood and he knows that blood alone can make him clean. What he doesn't know is exactly how this will be done, but we do. We have the full revelation of Jesus who has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we can stand here today with a repentant heart and we can have full assurance and full confidence in God and what God has done through Christ that we can be washed clean and we can be washed whiter than snow. And that's something to really, really be excited about. It means that we're not under God's wrath anymore. It means we're not, we don't have to pay him back for the debt that we have against him. And so that's verse 7. Verse 8 then just briefly talks about, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I believe David's alluding to here. He says, how oh God has broken the bones. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And sometimes when we come to a place of repentance, it can hurt 
when we come to realization of how broken and how sinful we are, it can really hurt. And that hurt is, is godly. That's a godly hurt. God can bring that sorrow into our hearts to realize, whoa, I've actually, I'm actually a broken person and I've done so much wrong in my life. Um, and that's something that God's bring, but, but God brings. But then we can hear joy and gladness knowing what Christ has done. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. As I said earlier in Colossians 3, that we're hidden with Christ. God doesn't see our sin any longer. We are hidden with Christ. His face is hidden from our sins and all our iniquities are completely blotted out. So clearly David has an understanding of the gospel here. Again, then in verse 16. Verse 16 is a funny one because it seems so contradictory to the Old Testament law, which David was technically under by most perspectives. It says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But according to the Old Testament law, that's exactly what he should have done. He should have brought a sacrifice and that should have been what worked. But what I think David is getting at here is that it doesn't matter if you slaughter a thousand bulls. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices you bring to God. If your heart isn't right, if your heart isn't in the right place, it doesn't mean anything to God. God's not interested in bulls. God, God, the reason that's there is that it points to Christ as the one and true sacrifice for all our sins. And it's about having the right heart towards Christ, accepting that we're broken, accepting that Christ is Lord and that he's paid for our sins. And then and only then will we receive forgiveness of sins through that. Right, so we've looked at re repentance, redemption, and now how God kindly leads us to repentance, redemption, and now there's renewal. And so I've, I've a quote here from H.B. Charles, um, and it's a good one. It says, after praying forgive me, as we've seen in the first part, the first point, David prays change me. Acknowledging that the God who cleanses sin is also the God who can change sinners. And so that's not the end of the story. God doesn't say, you're forgiven, best luck. You know, have a good life, I'll see you in heaven. Like, the rest is up to you. That's not what happens. The story doesn't end there. The passage doesn't end here. God forgives our sins, and then we're saved to a new life, a renewal of life. And so God's restoration leads to our renewal. God's restoring work, his creative power, his transformative power, leads to our renewal and new life. So that's, this part kind of starts from verse 10 onwards, basically, is where we'll see this. And so in verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word create there is the same word that's used in Genesis 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice picture to have that, even though we're so black in our hearts, our souls are so broken and damaged and so sinful, that God out of nothing, out of nowhere, can create in us a clean heart and he can renew a right spirit within us. I'm going to read um, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, because this relates to this. Um, it's one of my favorite Old Testament passages, actually, Ezekiel 36. I'll just read from verse 25 on. So it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's that imagery again. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Romans 7, 6 says this.
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we do so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this is what we have in the new in the new covenant now in the New Testament under Christ, as we just read in Ezekiel chapter thirty six. We've been given a new heart, a new spirit. We don't serve according to the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way, according to the spirit. And God has empowered us in our lives to change our ways. It's, it's, it's impossible in and of ourselves to just change because we're sinners at nature, as we saw earlier, from our very birth, where we have a sinful nature inside of us. But because of what God's done through Christ and because of what he's brought in in the new covenant, like it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we're made a new creation. Our nature is new. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new life. And, and the Holy Spirit guides us and strengthens us to live a life that's pleasing to God because we can't do it in our own strength. So it says, renew me a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence in verse 11 and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I've seen that so much in my life. God just upholding me with a willing spirit, even though I might be, I might, I might like try my best to, to just ignore him and get away from him. And I might just be totally ignoring him and I would be so faithless. But God always upholds me with a willing spirit. And I, I find it fascinating in my own life how God has just kept me and upheld me. For, and I'm not even that old yet, but I'm sure, I'm sure I get there where I can look back in all my years and see how God has upheld me for my whole life and just kept me there with a willing spirit. And then in verse, t verse 13, it says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And so David's saying, yes, he's forgiven, but he doesn't stop there. He has an understanding that because he's forgiven, because God has put a clean heart in him and renewed the right spirit within him, then he's able to do God's work and teach transgressors his ways. You can't start there. God's not asking you, as you're sitting here this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, he's not asking you to, okay, go clean up your life, do X, Y, and Z, do your best, come back to me when you're ready, when you've everything sorted out, when you've earned up enough brownie points, come back then, and then I'll forgive you. That's, it's, it's the opposite way. God, you come to God broken, totally sinful, you come to him with an honest heart, and you come to him as you are, you say, God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. And then God forgives you from that moment on. And then it's out of that understanding. When we understand that we're totally forgiven, that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's then that we can live a life that pleases God. It's then that we can have a growing holiness and sanctification in our lives where we can walk and do things like teaching sinners our ways and, and ministering to people and things like that. It's not the other way around, so don't get it confused. In verse 14, it says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I want to focus on 14 for a second. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. We see here how David, as he understands what he's been forgiven from, it causes him to praise God. This reminds me of Luke 7, Luke chapter 7, the story of the sinful woman, as it's called where Jesus comes to a Pharisee's house and there's a sinful woman there. And she, she cries at his feet. Her tears fall on Jesus' feet. She washes him with his hair. She pours a, a beautiful fragrance on his feet and washes his feet. And the Pharisees turn around to Jesus and say, oh, if you knew what this woman, who this woman was or what she was like, you wouldn't be doing that. And, and, and Jesus told a lovely parable in where he said, 
he told a story of two men, one who, who owed, say, a fiver to a friend, the other owed a million euro. If you forgive the five euro and you forgive the million euro, who's going to have more of an appreciation for what's happened? The person with the million euro. And so he says, this woman, oh, she's been forgiven much, but she loved much. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. David has an understanding of that here in verse 14. He realized that he's been forgiven of blood guiltiness, murder, and so that causes him to praise. Some of us might be sitting here today and say, hey, well, I haven't done anything that much. I haven't done anything that bad. Maybe I've been forgiven little. That's a massive problem. You've got a sin of, of, of self-righteousness there, and that's nearly the worst of them all. <laughs> and so everyone should have that perspective this morning that we've been forgiven of so, so much. Regardless of what your life has looked like, you've been forgiven of so, so much, every single one of us. And we're not meant to look back on that and what we've been forgiven and, and cause it for it to be a source of guilt or shame in our lives, not at all, because Jesus has washed that away. We should look back on what God has delivered us from and what he's forgiven us from and, and look towards God with a massive appreciation for what he's done in our lives and all that he's forgiven us of. And so even as we're singing later, be mindful of that, that God has forgiven us from so much so return that, return that uh, to praise in him because he deserves it for doing so much. So we're, we're nearly finished up now. A couple more verses. It says then, from 16 onwards, for you, do not, will delight, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The as we, we mentioned that earlier. And then in 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart or God you will not despise. We talked about that in verse one again, or sorry, section one, that God's not looking for the high and mighty. He's not looking for a pretense of purity. He's looking for the heart. When, you're a bro when you have a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart, that's what God's looking for. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God's not looking for a mechanical sacrifice of, oh Lord, I'm going to give up sugar for the year and you maybe you love me then. I'm not going to, I'm going to whip my back for 10 minutes every night and you love me then. He's not looking for that. He's not looking for that kind of a sacrifice. He's not looking for a bull on an altar. He's, obviously, we said already, the great and ultimate sacrifice is Christ. And once we have an understanding of that and we're walking in Christ, we're Christians, we have an understanding of the gospel, then... The true sacrifice that God is looking from us is, is present in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there are the sacrifices that David's talking about in verse 19, where we're fully, what's that? Sorry, I can't read my eyes are bad. Oh, did we forget communion? Okay, sorry. I was going to transition into communion, but we've, we've no bread and wine. Okay, next week. Communion next week. Be mindful of this passage next week when you're doing communion. <laughs> I normally wear glasses, sorry. So I couldn't see. So yeah, next week. And so that's the sacrifice that God is pleased with. Once we have an understanding of Christ, we're, we're confident and secure in him and in our position in Christ, then we can live a life pleasing to God as a living and holy sacrifice. So God kindly leads us to repentance. He leads us to redemption and renewal. We've seen that there in Romans 12 again, that we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so 
it's good to build that into your lives. Repent, not from a perspective of, oh, I better get this off my list so God doesn't hate me anymore. No, not that at all. It's so that we can come back to God in our relationship with him and get it off our chest. We have repentance, we have redemption. Always be mindful of that. That's the main point of this sermon. That should be the main point of your lives. We have redemption in Christ. That is the most important thing. And then from an understanding of that, we can have a renewed life, transformed and renewed in our minds that we can live a life pleasing to him. And so I'm just going to pray. We're going to worship. How long was I? Long enough. Sorry about that. (laughs) So Father God, thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Thank you so much for passages like Psalm 51, where we can see how David has done so wrong, and so have we, Lord. Maybe we haven't done anything that looks as big in our minds that what David has done, but we have done so much worse, Lord. And we, have, we, have, we are sin, sinful by nature, and we have wicked hearts, Lord. But you've chosen to love us regardless, Lord. You chose us to be your sons and daughters. You chose to make us a way to you through Christ. You chose to send your only beloved son to this world, Lord, to live a perfect life and die on the cross for us to be the true and ultimate Passover lamb for us, Lord. We are so grateful for that. I pray that that truth would lie so strong in our hearts that we'd be looking to you, Lord, that we'd be looking to what Jesus has done for us, looking to his great sacrifice and the forgiveness that we have in him. I pray that we would have a fresh and renewed understanding, Lord, that we have been washed whiter than snow regardless of what we've done, Lord, or what we have in our lives. You love us because of Christ, and we are in him, and we are so, so grateful for that. And I pray now that from an understanding of that, Lord, that you would cause us to have stirred up affections for you, Lord, Lord, stirred up affections for those around us from an understanding of the love that you have for us. You've been so good to us, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.